welcome back everybody to Stellavision Live, the podcast here at the Newport Comedy Room. Thank you all so much for your company. I would now like to, if I may, and I'd like you to please give a very warm welcome to, for me, basically one of the legends of Australian comedy. Uh, there are a few, in my opinion, who knew the landscape of comedy as well as this man and who knew how to manage a crowd and absolutely wow them. Uh, he was a, um, a polymath and I think he still is. You're going to love it. Uh, you will remember punter to punter. You will remember the Whittle family. You will remember many times uh, through the Australian uh, historical archives the sound of uh, Slim Whittle and his uh, lonely ukulele or guitar mm -hmm. as the uncrowned king of country music. Welcome, please, Mitchell Faircloth. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. Now, Mitch, uh, do you reckon if you added it up, how many times do you think you've appeared on stage in your life? Ooh. <laughs> um, I'm not very good with numbers. Um, <laughs> how about names? What about faces? You're out faces. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, recognise the face, can't remember the name. <laughs> it would be thousands? Yeah, thousands, I thousands. guess. Yeah, thousands of times. You know, I, I'm been semi-retired for a long time so you know I've had just as many years out of the game as in it you know, so. well I've been semi-funny for most of my life too so I guess I've had that as well but so you're a Wagga Wagga boy yes and and what was life like in Wagga Wagga in the am I going to say the 50s um the Wagga in the 1950s was like my own personal dream time oh yes yeah in what was, sense well it was you know for instance what was the rest of the world? I didn't know what the rest of the world was. All I knew was there was a place called America where they had cowboys and Indians. And that was about it. Um, it was a white bread town. There were just people like me. Um, I don't know, my world was very small, you know. There was the flood in 1956 and that was very exciting because we uh, floated little boats down the gutter and uh, we were up to our knees in water walking around. Yeah, that's about it, you know. Thank God for the flood, it gave you something to talk yeah. about. There was, uh, there was Buddy Nimmo down uh, around the next corner. He was uh, a bodgy and he could punch you up. Did and you get punched up? No, 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 I never did. So how do, how do you get out of Wagga and then get into comedy then? Well, I was a, a raff brat. My, Dad was uh, in the Air Force and there's a, a RAF base near Wagga called Forest Hill. Then we moved to uh, Melbourne and they sent us out to Laverton. And we were sentenced to eight years in Laverton. <laughs> <laughs> Could never get out. Uh, they promised us that we were going to go to Paris, that the biggest thing that happened in my father's life <clears throat> was that he went over to France to organise the electrical parts for the Mirage jet fighter. And he was there for nine months. He had a car accident over there, went under a bus. He was in a French hospital. And uh, he told us about it. The great thing about a French hospital is that every morning the nurse comes around and with a carafe of white and a carafe of red wine and you've got your choice. Would you like red, Mr Faircloth, or white? And, uh, yeah, but he came back and the whole family was going to go over to Paris and we are going to live over there. And we got all geared up and we are ready to go. We had everything packed. And then 
the Air Force said, oh no, there's a single man who we can send over there instead, so you stay home. And that's how we got to learn, learn how to eat up disappointment. Well, <laughs> slim. Um, did your father ever forgive you for being around? Because he would have got the job if he'd never had you. <laughs> There was another four of us as well, so no, we shared the blame. So the so you, you I also read that you took yourself off to you basically went off to graphic arts school. Is that right? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, I um, when I failed form six, um, it's not that bad. I didn't work at all. My father gave me three choices: you can get yourself a job. Join the Air Force or repeat Form 6. And I thought I could repeat Form 6. So I did. I spent the whole year playing blackjack under the desk with Carol Green. And I passed. (laughs) And uh, I went into uh, Rusden Teachers College. I was there for one term. And I didn't like psychology because... What, what the, the lesson was that if you get a rat and it presses one button, it gets an electric shock. If it presses the other button, it gets food and it learns to press the button for food and that's called education. And I thought, well, if that's education, I don't want to be a teacher. Okay. So I went to the Aquarius Festival and then that was it for me. All right. And, and teaching. I left, dropped out... And then two years later, Gough Whitlam got in, free education, and I went to uh, Philip Institute of Technology. It was a pretty good elevator at the, in that era. Um, and for those of you who maybe haven't heard of the Aquarius Festival, that was pretty famous, a group of hippies decided uh, to head on up to the Northern Rivers. They wanted to go to Mullumbimby first, and the cooperative of Mullumbimby, the people that own the multiple occupancies there, said, no way. You're not coming here. So they made them go further on to Nimbin and uh, history was made. So you were there in the yep. in the hills of Nimbin. Dancing days naked. Of fun and music and man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Building stone houses and convincing women, you know. It was free a, love was the same as marriage. There weren't many bands on. No? No, no, there was like uh, but it was such a, a ball. Everyone was having a huge party. Um, Chad Morgan was there. And a friend of mine got drinking with him in the local pub, and uh, which was packed every night. And all night, Chad insisted on buying the drinks. And my mate said, come on, no, let me buy a drink. And then at the end of the night, Chad Morgan handed him his wallet. He'd been, <laughs> he'd been paying for all the drinks out of my mate's wallet. <laughs> Captain Matchbox was there. Yeah. Um, also, the Karanda Commune were there en masse. And uh, Doug Anthony came there with his son, Larry. And Larry was about 12 years old. And um, they had the Nimbin Show, which was the local dairy community. And they had um, tug-of-war events. And then they had the Nimbin Show Queen, who was a big dairy girl in a long frock down to her ankles and uh, she was the Nimbin show queen then someone said what about the Aquarius queen and this guy with long hair and a beard came up the steps and he laid a big kiss on Doug Anthony's cheek 
And we thought, oh, this is going to freak out this old country party idiot. Anyway, Doug Anthony walked out to the middle of the oval with this hippie and held his hand in the air and said, we've got a contract. Wow. Like a marriage contract yeah. joke, but you know. He, he realised how things were changing around there, that old Doug Anthony. Well, and they were very pleased that it was changing too because they owned most of the land, Mitch. So <laughs> they pretty much cleaned up. And I think Larry Anthony is still the sitting member for the, uh, for the Nationals up there at the moment. Um, but so get, getting into comedy, we, we've interviewed quite a few people in this series and there was a real movement around the 70s and 80s and a, and a real sort of uptake and a sweep of, of, of interest and young people kind of getting out and, and heading off to see live comedy. It was one of the only alternative sort of commentaries that I guess that you could find at the time apart from um, Oz Magazine and, and so on. So who, who inspired you for comedy? Because a lot of your stuff's very old school when you think about it. Um. Well, it might be old school now, but it was uh, well, really old school stuff back then. <laughs> uh, no, what, what happened was at art school, we had a, a really great film teacher, a guy called Bert Dealing. He made the movie Pure Shit. Oh, yes, that was fantastic. And he was our teacher. and he ins- Helen Garner is in that film. Yes. Well, interestingly, Helen Garner was my high school English teacher in Form 1. But, um, which shows you how old she is. <laughs> you don't need to point out a woman's age, Slim. The point is, did she pass you or fail you? No, she was great. She was fantastic. You know, they had a lot of trouble with discipline at that school, but she never, ever had trouble with discipline ever in her class. She had everyone entranced. She used to wear a red miniskirt, and she looked hot, and she'd sit on the desk. She hadn't hit menopause yet. <laughs> Sorry, it's a running joke. Anyway, oh yeah, I'm with you. And uh, so when she'd sit on the desk, all the boys in the class would drop their pens on the floor to pick it up. And, oh yes. You know. Yeah. And, and all their sons now go to St Kevin's, I think. But um. <laughs> <laughs> but um, getting back to um, Philip Institute, so I, I did everything, but I was going to be a painter, but I did everything but paint. And one thing was that I wanted to do comedy shows because, um, I don't know, I just wanted to have fun and, do, you know, sing and perform. We'd, we'd made some songs for uh, our movie, Buckeye and Pinto, and wanted to continue with that. And uh, so Tracy Harvey and I, we got up and I dressed as a woman and her as a man, and we sang a song. Who is the most attractive? (laughs) Um, I don't think I made a very attractive woman. I'm I'm, I'm trying not to imagine that, as a matter of fact. (laughs) But uh, we were into a lot of androgynous stuff back then. You know, people would be surprised. Yeah, I can imagine. So, the the, the Whittle family, the creation of that, 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 because that was quite an extended format. So, what happened was that... um, um, a mate of mine at, um, at art school was a guy called Phil Pinder. And yeah. we made Buck and Pinto and Terra Australis, our films, together. And then also another job that Tracy Harvey and myself and Phil did was to paint the interior of the Last Laugh Theatre restaurant. So we all the straight lines, uh, Tracy did all of them, all the bits where... One colour blended into another, that was me. Phil did all the feature artwork. And 
while we were doing that, we were watching uh, Henry Mars and um, Steve Blackburn and uh, Rod Quantock rehearsing their show for the, the first show at the last lap was the Bundekind rocket ship show. And so that really inspired me. I thought, gee, the, you know, we could do that. And so Tracy and I and a mate of mine, Simon Thorpe, who was in background Pinto, we worked up our little act and we were living in a place in Smith Street and on the top floor was a guy called Sam Angelico. Yeah. He's a magician. A magician. And we worked out our little three songs and our little bit of spiel. And then we raced up. And we woke him up. And he was sitting up in his bed. And he, he's only little and it was a king-sized bed. So it looked really strange, this little guy sitting up in the bed as we worked through our songs and did our routine. And then we convinced John Pinder to let us do it for the late show at the last laugh. And we did three shows. And we said, can, can we get a show here at the last lap? And he said, um, go away for two years and then come back. And so we went and got a show at the Flying Trapeze Cafe, which John also established. And, uh, and then after the Flying Trapeze, we did a, a show at uh, Bar and Bay at a place called Dinty's Bar and Grill. And then there was nowhere else to play. That was so, it for Australia. <laughs> so we had to go and uh, play in the pubs. Yeah. So we, we took our comedy show around the pubs. We got ourselves a manager from uh, La Trobe University, a guy called Tim McLean. And uh, he fortunately had the uh, activities officers conference at La Trobe University just in time for us to do our show there for, for all these activities officers and from that he planned a national tour playing all the, the unis and then he'd fill it in with all these gigs at pubs and we get a door deal at the pub so we'd do the unis during the week and then have a door deal at the pub on the Saturday night pack the joint out and clean up we'll clean up so there, and so it was it was a good innings for quite a while yeah, yeah, it was great. But everyone got sick of being on the road all the time and uh, they, they wanted to and do that season at the last laugh that we'd always planned on. Yeah. And uh, our manager was, you know, we were getting offered two grand for a week at the last laugh, that's for all of us. And we were being offered two grand a gig in Sydney. Yeah. And uh, our manager, that's when he split from, from us. We thought, oh, well, we don't need a manager. We're, we'll be working here for eight months. Rookie move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so, but, so when, did, when did it start getting serious for you? Because getting into, I would imagine, getting a, a regular gig on Triple R, not that it's a paid gig, obviously, but the, it, it was the, you know, it was the sacred, um, kind of sacred ground of, of, of great radio, I suppose, if you were into alternative commentary or narrative or comedy and so on. So how did you get taken up into that realm? Well, we just happened to know a lot of the people at the uh, station anyway. But um, actually, I just said to Tony Rickards, who I'd happened to fallen in with because Tracy and I had broken up. She'd gone off with Simon 
and Simon used to work with Tony doing an act called Con and Vince. So they went off and I was left with Tony. And I said to Did Tony... Did you like Tony like you like Tracy, though? Um, look, I didn't have any choice in the matter. <laughs> <laughs> so it, was a bit, it was a bit of an ABBA breakup by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, the, you know, I knew the same thing had happened to the uh, Wunderkind rocket ship show. You know, Henry Mars and Peaches La Cream and uh, all that lot and Sam Angelico. Oh. They'd uh, gone away on tour. Certain partners had swapped when they got back. Hearts were broken. Tears were shed. But uh, <clears throat> maybe it makes you a better person for it in the end. Do, like, can you describe for me then, because that was a sort of a hotbed of activity and everybody, as you say, was, you know, sleeping around and doing great material and, and sharing and living... living it wasn't sleeping around, it was love. It was love, yes, it was. I'm sure it was, until it wasn't. Um, and so, t- take, me, take me through the, this phase, though, Slim, because, you, you, you know, you became a bit of a household name for quite a while and you were well, travelling for... OK, punter to punter, we... I said to Tony, look, I know you, you like the horses, I've got this idea, how about if we do a tipping show and, you know, a bit like uh, league teams with Lou Jack and Bob, only we do it on the horses and it'll be fun. And it was just a hobby. So you're not really a punting background? You're not, you're not, no, you're not, not from a horsing background? No. What happened was I'd, um, I thought I'll have a crack at picking the Melbourne Cup winner and so... I um, studied it really carefully and got right into the form guide and weighed up all the chances. And I came up with three horses, the Beldale Ball, My Blue Denim and Bohemian Grove. Anyway, Bohemian Grove bit down on his tongue in the Melbourne Cup and came last. And Beldale Ball won and My Blue Denim came second. And I thought, I'm a genius. <laughs> I, sh- I should be, you know, tipping these horses for people. And then uh, that summer, I was really broke. I had a dollar fifty, and I went to the Melissa Cake Shop uh, in Smith Street, uh, run by Sula. I don't know if you know Sula, best spanner, spanner competitors in Melbourne. Apparently, they've moved to Oakley now. But um, anyway. I was sitting there with the form guide and I had $1.50 and I thought, okay, I've just got to pick a long shot that likes it wet. And I picked this horse called Delhurst. Anyway, it was 200 to 1 or maybe more than that. And so my $1.50 became $90. And I thought, I really am a genius. <laughs> And, but, you know, the, the punting gods do that to you. You know, they rope you in. And with, uh, there's a lot of controversy going on about horse racing at the moment, and we will yes. get to that. But I think I want to get it's back to... It's not my fault. It's not your fault. But I noticed you, you, you run a fairly strong line on what you think is going on in the racing industry. But that 7.30 report that came out last week, I I think has really divided everybody now. I I think it's kind of taken the scales off people's eyes. And I've jumped into another area and I didn't want to get here immediately. But while we're talking about it, you've had a passion and you've kind of made a career out of um, country music and horse racing and the the sort of the whole 
um, the whole Uber, I guess, are around you know what horse racing is. Like, what do you think is going to happen now? Because there's a call, there's a, some serious calls now to look at the way we're doing this. And and do you think it's possible that the Melbourne Cup will actually come to an end? Um, look, I've always realised that racing is an anachronism anyway. You know, it comes from an era when people got around on horses and they were intimately involved with horses. And that having a whole lot of pasture devoted to raising horses when we're short of food is got to come to an end sometime. And then when once upon a time they just had betting on the horses and they'd have Tats Lotto and they had the TAB and, and the, the Greyhounds and the bookmakers at the track. But it sort of slowed down gambling. Now they've, they've, they've taken the, the uh, what have they taken off the bottle? They've let the, the gambling genie out of the bottle and it, now it's on everything. And so that, that'll probably kill racing faster than anything, you know, because... So it'll cannibalise itself, like the over, the over addiction of betting will cannibalise itself. Well, no, not that. That there will be so many other things to bet on that don't cost the betting companies any money to bet on it. You know, if they're, they're going to bet on whether Harry and Megan have a boy or a girl, you know, they don't have to pay anything for that. Well, then maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it is a good thing. It's, it's, t- it's time to put an end to this particular treatment of horses uh, because the wish fulfilment around it now can be, you know, gratified elsewhere, and um, and the horses can maybe just have a different life. Would would they have a life at all? Do you think? Would these horses be bred at all, though, if if there if there wasn't this sort of well, this they level wouldn't of... breed as many of them. No, I don't think it's going to die out straight away, but slowly, inextricably, horse racing will eventually just fade away. Yeah. Okay. But um, what happened at that? Uh, at that abattoir, that's not just horse racing, that's Australia. That's Australians, that's all of us. You know, that. how do we get our dog food? Have you got a pet? Yeah, no, no, I agree. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even in, you, in concurring. You check out where the dog food comes from? No, I don't. You know, I mean, I, I'm a dog owner and I'm, I'm doubly ashamed because I'm involved in the racing industry and I've got a dog. And you've been making a, 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 a living of sorts writing or, or uh, illustrating for the Winning Post for the last 17 years or so on. Yes, yeah, I do a cartoon every week. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that as well, but I, I must ask, and, I, and I've asked if this is okay to ask, because there's a bit of a gap here. So your comedy career took off, yeah. but there was a lot of habits in the comedy scene. And we, we've seen, we've seen um, a, a couple of people come through and talk about it in these interview sessions as well. But it, it caught up with you too, didn't it? Is, is that what put an end to yours and Tracy's relationship? No, 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 not at all. No, um, that's the breakup in a way um, was the, the cause of it. Oh, that was the cause. That was the beginning of it. Okay, it so was, I'll, I'll uh, just put a bit of context. So I, I met Slim when he came up to Byron Bay after he needed a little rest. Yeah. Because he'd I been doing a little rest. bit of too much other stuff. And Byron yeah. is full of people that do that. So, um, no, so some people take drugs to party. Some people take drugs just to feel normal. What was it for you? Just to feel normal. You know, that uh, I suppose I was an, had an overactive mind. I... 
I, I just, I was seriously depressed, you know. I'd had a terrible relationship breakup. It had not only destroyed my, um, all my sort of plans with children and family, uh, it also uh, broke up the act, the show, all of it. And uh, I, look, I'm not going to go into the details because I don't want to slag anyone no, off. No, 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 and no. I don't want to talk ill of the dead. <laughs> so, so it, it got pretty bad there for a while, though. And and yeah, it, and, and well, you know, um, if you're addicted, you're addicted. You know, you'll be riding your bike along in the rain, saying, "I must not do this," and still riding to the dealer's place. You know, or their phone numbers going over in your head. But, you know, you, you just... In the end, you try and get away from it, you try to go somewhere else. There'll always be drugs there too, so... Well, going to Byron probably wasn't the smartest move then, I suppose. But anyway, lots of people do that. No, that, that was something else. I'd actually gone to stay at my parents' place and I had got clean. And then I happened to be watching television one day and there'd been a shark had attacked somebody at Julian Rocks. Yeah. And they, the TV cameras went down and interviewed the first person coming out of the water. And it was this guy called Lester Bryan, who yep. was the person that we worked for. Who ran that bar. That bar yep. in Byron Bay. He, he'd also been a lawyer who'd been a drag before the Woodward Loyal, Royal Commission. and um, That's right, his... he got caught up with the Daintree Commission when that happened. Yes, yep. exactly. So, same guy. Anyway, he was an old surfer from the old school and I'm watching TV and they go up and it's him coming out of the water and they say, are you worried about that shark out there? And he said, ah, oh, the ocean always takes somebody. And anyway, I thought, well, he's in Byron Bay, so I rang him up. I've got to interrupt you though, Slim, because that did happen and the yeah. man who died at Julian Rocks, his name was Ford. Yeah. And um, 20 years later, there was another shark attack at Julian Rocks, and his name was Ford. Another Ford, same. And at the time, there was a TV commercial that said, have you driven a Ford lately? <laughs> and so it became, have you eaten a Ford lately? Oh, right. Um, but that was just a weird coincidence that happened there. And yeah, Lester Bryan was... Um, yeah, well, he said, it's funny you should ring, because I've just opened, started a touring company called Nimbin Tours, taking people out to Nimbin. And I said, well hey, I'm an Aquarius Festival veteran, you know, maybe I could come and work for you. Well, it was his suggestion, actually, that I go and work for him, but so I moved up there and I worked for Lester. And you did that. Do you know how he got that pub, can I tell you? There was a big typhoon or a hurricane headed towards Byron, sort of the mid-70s, mm -hmm. and a lot of people moved back from the, the water there. None of the tourism had taken off and the abattoir was still working down on the Belongel Beach. This huge storm was coming in and this property was right on the edge and the owner was stressing because he thought he was going to lose his property overnight. And Lester was a lawyer and he, he, he bet him. And he bet him on this place that it would still be standing the next day and he bet him an amount of money and he got out a piece of paper and as a lawyer he wrote up a contract and a title and they had a deal and they shook hands and the next day it was still there. And that's how I, he got his property. I know that story, but it wasn't Lester who got sure? the property. It was a friend of his, but Lester wrote the contract for him. Well, there you go. I'm yeah. half wrong, half right. Yeah. 
Um, moving on, no, I'm j- jumping over my era. Um, so you, going up to Byron when we met, that wasn't the first time then for you. Was that was that another go round? No, H- how many how many times did it take you to, to kind of clean up? Oh well, you know, I after Byron Bay, you know, I got involved again and uh, was using and. Uh, Went back to Byron so I'd been cleaning Byron Bay and everything, went back to Melbourne, came back with a habit, and then I was in trouble in Byron Bay. And I had to get out of there. Anyway, I went to my girlfriend's father and asked him if he'd lend me some money. And he said, I can't lend you some money, but I can give you a job. And he said, there was a job going at the Tumbarumba Blueberry Farm. And... <clears throat> So I went out there, and I was sick as a dog. I got a lift with the, the post office. The, the postal delivery guy gave me a lift out there to the blueberry farm, and I had nothing, and I was living on a, on a pallet. That they had all these cardboard boxes stacked up on pallets, and I cleared a little area in the middle of them and lay down there at night and then worked at the blueberry farm and gradually got myself right. And then after a while I noticed, you know, that I said, can I pick fruit? I said, oh yeah, sure, you know, you can. I was just working in the shed. I didn't know that working in the shed was the dream job that all the pickers wanted, you know. They were already hating me. Uh, Anyway, so I started looking around and noticing how inefficiently this place was run. And I worked every job on the place, you know, from weighing the fruit out in the yard to all the bits on the packing line and um, slashing, you know, with a whippersnipper. I did six weeks on a whippersnipper, ten hours a day, seven days a week at one point. But I wrote up a list of all the things that I thought, you know, they could fix up. And... Anyway, I showed it to my girlfriend. She said, you should, you should show that to Dad. And so I showed it to him. And he said, oh, I've got to show this to the other partners. And anyway, pretty soon, they decided they were going to get rid of the old management team. They said, we thought this was going on. And then they gave me the job of uh, farm manager. <laughs> so... Basically, within a year, I went from shit kicker number 868 to the farm manager of the Tumbarumba Blueberry Farm. Then they made me general manager. So I was in charge of like uh, 120 pickers during the, the picking of the fruit. And I rearranged all the process lines and I cut the price of uh, packing the fruit from uh, $1.25 a kilo to 35 cents a kilo just by uh, putting the quality control out there in the field. You know, because I noticed some people pick beautiful fruit and some people picked absolute rubbish and they're getting paid the same amount. And then they had to put all this rubbish through a process line to sort it all out. By the, the time they'd finished that, all the fruit, fruit was bruised and damaged and it was getting sent back because it was mouldy. Whereas the, if everyone picked it like these other people, these Africans, who were <laughs> fantastic pickers, you know. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, the local Australians were just so lazy and incompetent, you know. No wonder 
there's so many uh, workers from overseas working here in Australia because... Okay, so I'm going to jump forward again to... So where I want to sort of pick this up is um, the advent of social media and yeah. you've semi-retired or retired or however you want to describe it. You, you, you had... A, you had you had partially a huge career and then I guess it got a bit interrupted from, you know, for, for all your personal reasons. I did work in comedy after. Yeah, I know, I know you did, but I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, um, in the era that you were, were working consistently when you were much younger, there wasn't much of a career path for comedians because television hadn't taken off for comedy. Uh-huh. But, it, but it did in sort of the latter half of your career, but by then yeah. you, you were a little bit caught up with other things and getting clean and so forth. When, when social media took off, you really sort of positioned yourself as a social commenta- a commentator. And um, I'm interested, first of all, in, you know, I can hear influences about your dad and what he would have liked. He probably wasn't thrilled that you went into live performance, I would imagine. He sounded like he wanted something a little bit more secure for you. And, um, so, but, but when you got... When you've seen uh, the sort of career comedians that we have now, you know, some, some comedians in this country, uh, you know, on, on good money and um, have, have extraordinary exposure and maintain, um, how, do you, how do you look at the shape of comedy in Australia? Because it was for a period of time a place people could go to to find out what was happening because we didn't have the internet. So it was a way to find out what yeah, was going on yeah. in the world. Well, look, my approach to comedy was very different to what people's approach is these days, you know. I I was into it to have fun. And we just wanted to put on a show and enjoy ourselves and have fun. And that, that was our motivation. I've never been interested in trying to build a comedy career. And, <clears throat> you know, I, <clears throat> it's very stressful, mm. The working as a comedian and you've got to get up every night uh, and work late hours. You know, i am always said to myself, when I retire from comedy, I want to get back into painting and doing my art, which is what I'm doing now. And I've, like I said, I've been doing it 17 years and finally I'm starting to really sell a lot of my work, you know. I've improved the standard of it over, you know, working at it consistently. It's probably one of the things that I'm able to do that a lot of other people can't. That's just absolutely suck up disappointment and persist, keep at it, keep going, you know. And it's something that I can do that's personal, it's easy, it's, you know, I can control it. And I, I like getting up early. Like, I like to be up with the birds. Mm. You know, it doesn't suit this kind of life. I've got a bowl tomorrow. Yes, you're a you know. serious bowl. <laughs> um, I'm going to get you to play a little piece for us. Yeah. And while you sure. do that, I'm going to grab my phone because I want to read out a couple of your posts before we wrap up this evening. But I'll leave you to do that for just a moment. I'll try not to make too much noise. Okay. What do you well, play for us? Um, well, I guess I'll... Um, now you've opened up the can of worms about the, um, the, ba- the dark period... Although I must say, you know, really, it's an adventure. You know, drug addiction is actually a lot more fun than people make out, you know. Um, This is called, I'm packing away my deck of cards and cleaning out my stash. I'm packing away my deck of cards and cleaning out my stash 
I'm pouring all the whiskey down the kitchen sink No more crack pot smack nor hash I'm cancelling my next weekend binge I'm safely disposing of my old syringe I'm packing away my deck of cards And cleaning out my stash no more drinking, no more gambling, no more all-night fancy pants And no more sinking my finances on the punt You get no second chances and losing just an answer So here's the news for those who think I can't I'm packing away my deck of cards and cleaning out my stash I'm straightening out my hundred dollar bills No more two with cocaine I'm putting a stopper on popping pills Yeah, they're all going down the drain I'm cancelling my Viagra prescription I'm even burning my porn collection I'm packing away my deck of cards And cleaning out my stash Did you know that 67% of all Viagra Is used by guys going solo with porn? Talking trash, taking very cash, jumping lines upon the bar to prove I've got some cash. No more talking trash, no more cigarette ash, no more after the ATM every half an hour for cash. I'm packing away my deck of cards and cleaning out my stash. to get off the powders and the in, in, intravenous drugs? Well, let's put it this way. People say that, you know, giving up cigarettes is the toughest thing there is. That's easy. Cigarettes, easiest thing in the world. They're not addictive in the slightest by comparison. Really? No. So, so um, you, you kind of must have had some long nights of the soul over, over the time. The, um, but, but you got there and, and lots of people don't get there. Yeah, well, yeah, in the end, you realise that wherever you go, you can't... You might get away from situations and people and drugs and stuff, but you never escape yourself, mm. you know? It's until you're able to live with yourself and go back and live where you want to live, you know, and face up to yourself. And a lot of it, too, is your expectations, you know? You know, if you've got these sort of false expectations about what you're supposed to be and who you're supposed to be and you're always trying to live up to some amazing image that you have of yourself, you're, all, you're going to be miserable. You know, you just have to roll with the punches, relax, have a good time. Um, well, acceptance. Acceptance. So when... when, when um, oh, th yeah, round of applause, please. So, Slim, um, 
just to give you some context, because I met Slim when he came up to Byron, and at the time I was working with Mandy Nolan and we were performing a fair bit. And uh, we had some fun. We did have some fun. And Tim McLean uh, was your mate. You tortured us. Well, he gave me my first gig. You directed us in that sh- that play, remember? Yeah, well, we didn't talk that after that torture. for a while. I know, you didn't enjoy that. It was, I was trying to do some serious theatre. Um, it was a waste of time in that part of the world, no, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. It was really, it was great. I did, I did torture you, didn't I? Yeah. I put you through some serious directing props. I yeah, did, I and you, did, you didn't cope very well. You did a great job, though. That was a great show. Yeah. That was a great show. I'll, I'll show you the photos one day. Um, but to give you some context, Slim moved up to Byron. I was working with Mandy Nolan. Tim McLean was your friend but gave me my first job. Yeah. I, this, apropos of nothing, we'll probably cut it out of the podcast. I just have to tell you this because it was the weirdest coincidence. The first time I went to Byron Bay, and this is your interview, not me, but the first time I went to Byron Bay, he hitchhiked with a girlfriend and um, along the way, we were picked up by this guy and he was heading uh, from um, the south coast, I think, of, of um, New South Wales up to Sydney and we were going that way. So he gave us a lift but on the way, we suddenly realised there was a guy on a motorbike following and we started to get really nervous and so I talked to Tim endlessly. I just asked him a thousand questions. Oh, I can't imagine that. I wanted to know... <laughs> And what I got from him, I was just trying to find out if he was a serial killer, and what I got from him was that he was deeply embittered about the music industry, he was <laughs> deeply embittered about the film industry, he was deeply embittered about the comedy scene, and I thought, this guy's no serial killer, he's just miserable. And um, anyway, when we got to Sydney, he asked us if we wanted to stay, it was very nice of him, and it didn't feel creepy or weird, it was just a nice thing to do, and we said no, no, and we went on our way. Um, can I tell you that, like, two years later, I formally moved there. By formally, yeah. I just, you know, moved there. And I was out one night with... I had a new partner then and he was the editor of the local newspaper and he was asked to come and judge some competition, a talent competition. And I was sitting in a seat in Byron Bay, only having lived there for a couple of months, and someone said, "How did you know, why did you move here? And I said, well, I was hitchhiking and I got this lift with this guy and there he is. And he was walking through the door at the same time as I was telling that mm-hmm. story. I found that quite an unusual thing, except in Byron Bay, that's quite a regular thing. People don't take coincidences very seriously. Mm. It's just your destiny. It's just the universe. Well, here's another coincidence. I'll tell Tim about you thinking he was a serial killer because <laughs> I'll be bowling with him tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> he, he won't care. He always thought I was a bitch anyway. He's but, um, my third. <laughs> um, he, is, he is like a serial killer if you don't know him. He looks like, if you get out a $10 note, he looks exactly like that guy. They, they used to call him Sharky. Yep, yeah, or $10 Tim. Now, okay, I want to talk, okay, we, 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 we're going we're gonna to wrap this up soon, but um, so you, you, you had this career, you had your heart broken, you had sort of, you know, terrible run with, with, you know, getting clean and falling off the wagon and so on, and you didn't have kids, and I'm sorry about that. Or did you? No, um, <laughs> no, I, I, ra- I raise OPs. <laughs> You race what? I race, bring up... Oh, o- OPs, other people's. Oh, well done. Well I've, done. I've Good on you. A, a, <laughs> a lovely um, stepson. Yes. And, in fact, Tracy and I have just completed making a... Uh, recording a song together. Oh, thank God. Making, I thought you were going to say you made a human. And I thought, you know, not no, now. making a film clip. <laughs> and um, my stepson, Alex, filmed the, the whole thing. So it was uh, fabulous. We've just finished it. Oh, you just finished it? You're going you're to do a retro? It. Excellent. And as soon as I get back from overseas, I'm, I'm going for an overseas joint to um, Tasmania yep. this week. 
And as soon as we get back, we're going to get it on YouTube and uh, everyone can see it. It's called um, You Say That You Love Me. Oh. Can you, will you be able to play a bit of that later on? Um, not right now, not right now, because I just yeah. want to do this okay. before we wrap up. Sure. So I, I picked up a game with you because I joined you on Facebook and noticed that you would just regularly post these random comments about things, but you have such a huge take-up. People get really stuck in Ooh, yeah. to what you say. And, you know, a game with – we all have this weird relationship with social media. Some of us really put in and we, you know, write a lot of stuff and some of us are good at commenting on other people. Other people just watch – they just look and, and they know everything but they don't engage. So just as a, as a weird one, so you, you talk about you love to do political commentary. You get stuck into mm. Trump whenever you feel like. That's, that's a sort of a regular one. Um, your, your spider diaries, they went on for a very long time. Yes, I've your, got a new spider too. Okay, good. Um, your dog stories, of course, and yeah. you know, tragically you lost one a while ago but you've yeah. replaced him. Yeah. Um, but, but here's one I really liked. It. Her? Uh, her, sorry. Sat-nav. I'm loving it. This is slim. Uh, Mitch, sat-nav. I'm loving it, but I don't have it. But everybody else does, and cl- and they're clearing all the surface roads of traffic. My rat run from Flemington to McKinnon is open throttle all the way, and that's during peak hour. You could fire a shotgun up Park Streets and killed her at 5.30, only to hit a tram and me. All thanks to sat-nav. All the square heads are on Beach Road dutifully following the GPS, crawling along on a bumper-to-bumper traffic jam. It's brilliant. It seems the older you get, the better life gets. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> So what I want to know is I use Facebook to promote shows, sometimes show off my kid, do a bit of brag, maybe, you know, put up a, a picture or two. But you just like to get stuck into stuff, just weird random stuff. Well, I hate injustice. I can tell. And, and, and does posting on Facebook fix it? Because here's one. Survey, number one, do you think we should have a DNA register of all dogs so we can DNA test dog shit and find their owners? Mm. Do you? Oh, here, here we go. We'll, we'll divide and conquer now. Do you think doll recipients should have mandatory drug tests so they can be denied payments if they test positive? Yeah. Controversial. <laughs> Do you think AFL players should be tested for recreational drugs, whether it's game day or not? Should be yeah. Do you think? <laughs> Do you think we should have facial recognition cameras at the entrances to football grounds and shopping centres? <laughs> so you've got a polemic going already. Do you think Homeland Security Border Force officers should have the right to search homes to ensure that nobody is hiding illegal immigrants? <laughs> Do you think Hitler had some good ideas? <laughs> well, they're all things Hitler would approve of, aren't they? Yeah, but then... And then it, it takes... People just get stuck into it and they all buy into it. Like, does it amuse you that so many people feel the need to qualify? I saw someone the other day get really stuck into you. I know. I I, uh, talked about that TV show, Frayed, and I really liked it. Yeah, you liked it. it. I was surprised. I thought you'd hate it. No, I love it. Uh, Anybody who's giving it a red hot go and it's uh, warm and friendly and it's on a human level, uh, I will go with it. I I didn't like Les Norton because I thought it was a load of... Yeah, it was, Shit, okay. made t- it, was, it was made too late. It should have been made a while ago. Okay, you're also <laughs> a grammar Nazi. Can I just say that I mentioned that because the, a joke in the show was the woman said that um, Newcastle was... A kid said, Newcastle? What's this place? And she's, you said we were going to live in Sydney and she said Newcastle's like a suburb of Sydney. Anyway, 
the number of people that um, jumped on Facebook to say, no, it's not a suburb of Sydney. Exactly. It, 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 just, it, it just brings out the vitriol in all of us. You want, you want the grammar Nazi one? Yeah, sure. Because you, you are a grammar Nazi. And I'm wondering, is it because did you have a good education? You're also, like, you are a polymath and you're very, very bright. No, I had really bad education, but I had a couple of really great teachers, Helen Garner and a guy called Dr Norman Safin, who should have been teaching in universities. And is uh, the guy who's the head of the history department in um, at La Trobe, he, he was in the same class as me with Dr Safin and you know that's how he that's how he went yeah yeah you got a guitar uh, and a broken heart grammar watch in Trump's latest outburst he threatened Turkey with an extremely decimated economy apart from being unrealistic and insane the statement is so grammatically incorrect it makes me want to extremely decapitate him <laughs> well you, you you can't extremely decimate something <laughs> no, because uh, Decimation by definition is partial. It is. It's ten percent, right? Am I right there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> extremely decimate. Well, any yeah. any any decimation would be good. Um. So so what what like what prompts you? Is it is it part of the addiction? Um. Look, I was in a family of loudmouths, and you know when you just had to shout just to be just to be heard with the, the rest of them. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But uh, it, for me, it's like a form of journalism, you know. I, I like journalism and I'm not writing for any news. Actually, I do write a bit of writing for The Winning Post. Well, I, I actually wish someone would pick you up and syndicate it. I think it would be fun. But then I don't need them to because Facebook is free and that's that, that weird relationship that we have with it, you know. How much of ourselves do we put into it? No, but you see, I'm practising just for the day that one day... I'll get my shot and I'll have done my 10,000 hours of writing. I, I did work as a writer, by the way, for... I know you did. Steve I know you Bizard, did. Yes. TV show. Yeah. And he's not a crook. <laughs> Do you think you could get him on this show? It'd be great to have him here. Um, no, great. Anyway... He's writing musicals these days. He is. And you should write a book. Yeah, I know. I just don't have the time. I've got bowls. I've got to walk the dog twice a day. I've got my cleaning job. Uh, and then the cartoon that just, like, sucks up three days, just, like, you know, thinking it up first and then drawing it and then painting. And, you know, like, there's three nights of the week I can't even watch television because um, I can barely see, you know, but doing this fine detail... But yeah. I'm finally making it as an artist. I'm selling them, you know. You are a true martyr, Slim. Congratulations. Um, and, and, and it, yeah, well, it would be good to see. We'll, we'll write a book with um, illustrations then. It might take you less time. Yeah. No, take more time. <laughs> I did write a comic book. What did you call it? Uh, it was called The Crimson Goat Comic Book. Uh, okay, because you, you had a cabaret room then with the same name, right? Yeah, with um, Jack Levi and I, we... Um, for about five or six years or something, we had the Crimson Goat Cabaret Club and it was very successful. We ran it at, the, at Ormond Hall and had it packed out about once every two months. Or, But Jack couldn't cope with doing it anymore and he couldn't let go of it either. So it we had to just give it up. Yeah. But it, it, we'd, we'd had our time with it. So you, you haven't finished performing though. You say you're semi-retired. I'm, I'm 
thinking of getting a bit of a country band together. But, I, but you're not, a, you won't do comment anymore, I understand. No, 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 no. No, it's, it's a young person's sport. I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> um, and I, I've got a bit of trouble with, you know, I get a sore throat, you know. You might notice I'm a bit husky. Can that. you hear a bit husky, yeah? And, uh, but that suits country and western music. It does. You know, sometimes you can actually sing better than you can talk. Well, Willie Nelson's done pretty well for most of his <laughs> life, hasn't he? Um, yeah, Willie, he's very good at placing his voice in exactly the spot where he doesn't hurt it, you know. Nice, superb. Yeah. Well, in uh, light of uh, Willie Nelson, <laughs> it's a good segue to getting you perhaps to uh, give us a sneak peek of your uh, return tour de force with... Um, okay, um... Yes, it's, it's called You Say That You Love Me and it goes like this. So I'll have to do um, Tracy's verse as well, but I'll let you know when I'm getting to it. Okay. When we were married, we pledged to death to part. Words that I knew were going to haunt me from the start. What was made in heaven only God can tear apart. You tell me that you love me, then you break my heart. And you say, you say that you love me. And you say, you say that you care. And you say, you never stop thinking of me. And if I had some, you would run your fingers through my hair. That's what you say. What you say? I came home late from work. I had to clinch a deal. You chewed my ear down to the bone. It spoiled the evening meal. I bring home the bacon, but you treat me like a heel. You tell me that you love me, but you don't care how I feel. And you say, you say that you love me. Slim, Mitch, you uh, now were always and probably will be forever a tragic, flawed figure 
with a big heart <laughs> and a large brain. And I think the comedy scene is, uh, is, is, is a little lesser for, for not having your presence around anymore. So don't rule it out. You never know. You might, uh, you might find um, it's time to step back into the, into oh, the, into the limelight again. There's so many people who are so much quicker and, you know, and s- smarter. Smarter? I, I know. But you've still got something to say by the sounds of it to me. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thanks for coming uh, on to, uh, to our podcast tonight and talking to me on television and Funny About Books. Thank you all for sticking around and uh, appreciating a little bit of the, of the slim magic. And um, great to have you on television. Thank slim you. Magic Thank so you, Newport. Cheers. Bowl on. Thanks, Dave. Dave on the audio. And again to Scotty and Stewie. We'll see you all again, everybody. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>